Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ of the Cure. This is episode 145. The song you are listening to is Redeemed by We Are Creature. They are a um, newish project um, coming out of Australia. I believe they messaged me and said, hey, would you check out the song? And so I listened to it and I thought it was great. I like the 80s influence with uh, the modern uh, mix. And so I was like, hey, I would like to play this in the intro and uh, link people to you guys. They're going to have a new song by the end of the month, they said. So I'll put their information in the description. You can check them out. Uh, which, by the way, it's kind of a weird thing, but if you have Christian music that's theologically sound and uh, you think it sounds good, shoot it over to my email, nick.campbell at christthecure.org, and I'll check it out. And if it fits my music taste, yes, because I'm going to be biased about my music taste, then uh, I'd be happy to play it and point people in your direction. Uh, I like to see... Um, more diverse Christian musicians coming out, you know, unique stuff, you know, not the same stuff you, you find everywhere else where it all sounds the same, but if you're acoustic and you have like a folksy sound, then you're going to win my heart over anyway. So one thing worth mentioning before we begin is Biblingo, uh, the Rosetta Stone of biblical languages. I hope to have a review video up, um, soon been kind of busy, but if you remember, we did an interview with the, one of the founders of Biblingo uh, during our summer guest series, and you can get a discount on a subscription just by typing in Christ is the Cure as your discount code. So go to biblingo.org. It's B-I-B-Lingo.org. I'll even put it in the description here. And go check out the free trial and pick up some Greek and Hebrew in your free time. So today it's Beyond Luther Part 3, the Counter-Reformation. Well, no, we're going to title this one Trent and Justification, right? Um, so we're finishing up the Beyond Luther series. So we had three weeks in October dedicated to Beyond Luther. And the next episode is going to also be related to uh, a Reformation topic. I'm actually torn on a couple different topics. Go figure. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. Um, and after October, we'll likely go back to bi-weekly because... Um, I just have a lot of work to do and I want to give you guys quality episodes. History episodes are a little bit easier to prep for, believe it or not. Um, you just pick up a few history books, you consult them and collaborate information and things of that nature. When it comes to handling the biblical text, I like to take my time. So let's begin. Now, when it comes to, uh, the position of Rome and the reformers, we tend to think of it as an us versus them mentality, right? Um, which is only true when it comes to Protestants um, and the particular institution of the Roman Catholic Church at this time, uh, especially when it comes to like the Pope. Um, the reality is that there were many within Rome during the 16th century who had differing opinions. We, we already talked about uh, humanists such as Erasmus, who stayed within the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, his situation being you know quite unique and peculiar, um, but eventually there would be a call to deal with the claims of reformers. You can get into, again, a lot more depth about how this you know, formulated and, and got together. We'll briefly mention some of it and just know whenever I start talking about historical figures or dynamics, it's a lot more complex. That's just one thing to keep in mind. So whenever I talk about Spanish versus the Italians, uh, it gets complicated. Um... So as, as we mentioned, there was um, various groups popping up. The Jesuits would actually pop up at some point, and they would attend the Council of Trench. Um, but at the same time, there was also a group known as the Catholic Evangelicals. And you heard me right, Catholic Evangelicals. Uh, 
Uh, they were essentially those that agreed with basically most of the Reformed critiques of the church, but they just couldn't break with the papacy. Uh, these individuals wanted to reform the church from the inside out, and uh, this was typically considered to be occurring during 1521 to 1541, uh, they were moving, they were wanting to reform the church, the papacy, uh, being kept intact. Uh, and they wanted to bring the Protestants back into the one true church, right? They had a heart for the Protestants. They wanted to reform the issues that the Protestants raised that they saw as valid, but they also wanted to keep the Pope. Um, so there are various influences. You can start naming individuals, including uh, Johannes von uh, Stoppitz, who was basically the spiritual guide of Luther whenever he was younger. Um and you'll find that he had an agreement with Luther basically on everything except for the papacy. And he would essentially diverge from Luther heavily whenever Luther starts speaking about the Pope in uh, you know, a variety of ways, to say the least. Um, so this, again, would be the case for many Catholic evangelicals. Um, some would also disagree with the Protestants on things like uh, the Eucharist, or that is communion. But um, what you find is that the Catholic evangelicals were actually just as bold as the Protestants when it came to calling the church to reform, uh, especially on the topic of salvation by grace alone. So enter in the Council of Trent. Uh, many of you have heard of the Council of Trent. Uh, for good reason, it was absolutely formative for the Counter-Reformation, for Roman Catholicism as time went on, and we'll even get a little bit into the history beyond the Council of Trent, uh, because I think it's important. Um, why are we talking about the Council of Trent? This is a Protestant podcast, uh, and the reason why we're talking about the Council of Trent, because for, for one, history is important. Two, if we're going to talk about the Reformation, we have to talk about the Counter-Reformation. And then three, it's good for us to know what Trent did, how they formulated something, and whether or not that's continuing today when it comes to Rome. Because if we're going to interact with Roman Catholics, we have to know what's going on. Um, so th this hopefully will also give you some theological insight into what they believe about justification and how we can discuss with them about justification. Um, anyway, so the Council of Trent was supposed to be an ecumenical council in the West, right? Uh, and they've been they've been calling to have this council for years, uh, but basically it became non-ecumenical. Uh, much of Europe left Rome and the papacy, uh, and essentially the Council of Trent became an echo chamber, a council of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, one of the delays uh, was primarily political. A French monarch and the Holy Roman Empire fought over who would influence the council and who needed to stay out of it, essentially. Uh, and choosing the place to meet was actually difficult. Trent, uh, located in northeast Italy, became the final location where the council would meet. And because of this, Francis I and the French delegates didn't really care to show up. Uh, this means that the Italians and Spanish attendees were the majority, which caused its own tension in its own right. Why? Well, because the Italians favored the supremacy of the Pope over the monarchs, while the Spanish favored the monarch's supremacy uh, specifically Charles V, over the papacy. So they held that the, the council should be supreme over the pope, right? So there was a tension there. One group thought that the pope should be supreme. The other one thought the council should be supreme. Now, if you're curious, the Catholic evangelicals tended to be in the former group. They, they were mostly Italians. In the council trend, there would be various disputes and discussions uh, over various doctrines uh, between these two particular groups, such as justification, where the Italians would argue for justification by faith, while the Spanish tended to do the opposite uh, because it was, quote-unquote, too Lutheran, right? Uh, so the Council of Trent is essentially broken up into three stages based on the time of meeting. You have 1545 to 1547, 1551 to 1552, and 1562 to 1563. So let's begin with, well, stage one. 
1545-1547. This stage began by discussing various doctrinal and practical reform simultaneously. Uh, The former was considered most important because of the various challenges of Protestants, right? The, The doctrines were being challenged. And of course, doctrines lead to practice, and so there you go. Um, so Trent would actually have various discussions, debates, and arguments over each matter, and the views were not monolithic. We need to stress this. They were not all agreed upon. There was diversity, much diversity of Trent, uh, and it was not all the same by any stretch of the imagination, nor do they all have similar views on, um, how, um, to actually reform the church. So I'm going to utilize Nick Needham here. Um, He uses a case study of scripture and tradition to show how the Council of Trent reasoned through things, and I think it's very helpful. So again, we're going to discuss the case study of scripture and tradition. So the topic would be opened up by the papal representative who argued that God's revelation was contained equally in scripture and tradition. Uh, And this um, opening found a lot of opposition by bishops. Um, And the bishops insisted that the only tradition— they were willing to consider was apostolic tradition. That is the teachings and customs that could be traced back to the apostles themselves rather than traditions that had developed over time. So this was agreed upon. um, And then several weeks of discussion led to three parties on the subject of apostolic tradition and scripture. So group A, group A believed that tradition was equal with scripture as revelation. Group two believed that tradition was secondary and scripture contained that, that which was necessary for salvation. And then group three was the group that agreed with the second group, but who held that tradition was inspired and infallible interpreter of scripture. So Nick Needham notes that the committee who formed the decree had to produce something that these particular parties would approve of, um, something that they could all agree on. So there were several drafts, a lot of exchange, a lot of heated exchange, especially on the notion that um, Revelation was partly in scripture and partly in tradition. There was a big lashback against that notion. Um, So after several drafts and debate, the final decree was, quote, Following the example of the orthodoxy um, and the fathers, the council accepts and venerates with the same sense of devotion and reverence all the books of the Old and New Testament together with all the traditions regarding faith and morality as proceeding from the mouth of Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and preserved in unbroken succession in the Catholic Church. So Nick Needham notes that this decree was one that all three parties could agree upon and that it declared that traditions that dealt with faith and morals were equal with Scripture, not tradition in general. So we have to remember that. Things like turning to pray a certain direction was not included in this type of tradition. Just as well, they they removed the idea of Revelation being partly found in one and partly found in the other, saying that um, all truth concerning salvation can be found in Scripture, even if some of them were also found in tradition. So again, a big summary of how Trent processed with time and debate to come to various conclusions in different sessions, right? Um, Some of the approved decrees in the first session uh, was that the Roman Catholic Church was the only proper means of interpreting divine revelation. Um, The Latin Vulgate was the supreme and authoritative text of Scripture, even more so than the Hebrew and Greek. And then accepted the Apocrypha as inspired Scripture, um, or as canon, right? Um, Worth sidebarring um, at the expense of being unbiased is that when Rome tells you that it gave you the canon and the Bible, just remember that Rome didn't use an infallible ecumenical declaration of the inclusion of the apocryphal since the 16th century. Basically, according to Rome, we couldn't possibly know what the canon was until technically the 16th century. Uh, 
There's, sorry, there's my bias shining through. Anyway, moving on. In the first session is where Trent discussed justification and denied that it was by faith alone and instead explained justification as, quote, not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of the grace and gifts by which the unrighteous person becomes righteous and an enemy becomes a friend so that he may be an heir according to the hope of eternal life. For although no one can be righteous unless... The merits of our Lord Jesus Christ's suffering are communicated in him, yet this is done in the, this justification of the ungodly, when by the merit of the same most holy passion, the love of God is poured forth in the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who are justified and is inherent in them. Thus, in this justification, together with the forgiveness of sin, a person receives through Jesus Christ, in whom he is engrafted faith, hope, and love, all of these infused at the same time. For faith, unless hope and love are added to it, does not unite a person perfectly with Christ, nor makes a person a living member of his body. That's a mouthful. Um, this is to say that Trent's view on justification was that it was not only the forgiveness of sins. It was not forensic. It was not a declaration um, of a status of a human being being declared righteous or forgiven, right? Uh, based off of Christ's imputed righteousness, but rather it was the transformation of a sinner into a holy person via the infusion of righteousness. So rather than the imputation of Christ's righteousness, it's the infusion of righteousness into the man, and the man then works out his own righteousness and grows in it. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit, I believe. Um, so the section also notes that those who have this inner righteousness of the new birth must preserve it, keep it pure. Uh, and spotless so that they may wear it before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal life. So following this, there was a series of anathemas, and anathemas are condemnations or curses, right? Um, I declare you anathema is a condemnation, and a lot of people have tried to twist that to say that that's not what Trent meant, um, but really historical context makes it quite clear. Um, and, you know, and you have modern Catholics who try to try to lighten that pronouncement because it's ecumenical because it's it's binding in dogma they'll try to lighten that and say that that's not what they meant but moving on uh there was also a series of denials with these anathemas that were essentially misinterpretations of protestant errors or straw men really uh on justification um such as the common common today claim that there was nothing more past the remission of sins in the Protestant view of salvation. So this is all to say that justification for Trent is essentially the entire process of salvation. And they would also go on to condemn the Protestant view of forensic ju uh, justification. So if you held to forensic justification without sanctification being blended together with it, then you were anathema. That is to say that Trent conflates justification and sanctification, and that the individual's righteousness was their own instead of Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer. It was um, the individual's righteousness that was infused into them. Uh, Trent's claim was that justification was by faith, hope, and love. And this also alienated Protestants because Protestants couldn't affirm justification by faith alone now, uh, which was argued by Rome, as we hear often, that it's, it's fruitless mental assent, right? Uh, it has to have hope and love, uh, even though Protestants continuously and consistently championed that uh, we are saved by a faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone, that it does produce real things. But Trent alienated the Protestants by doing that and then created a strawman out of it. So stage two, 1551 to 1552, um, the council was reconvened by Pope Julius III and Emperor Charles V, 
um, who forced the Pope to allow Lutheran delegates to attend. Ooh, needed a water break right there. Um, so he forced the Pope to let Lutherans attend, who would logically want to discuss that which occurred in stage one. And this was refused by the Roman delegates. Uh, so basically the Lutherans would come in, hey, we need to discuss these things that you did in the first one because those are important. Uh, no, we're not doing that. We're already done with the first session. So the Lutherans eventually walk out in 1552. And following this, the council would focus on the sacraments that were essentially anti-Protestant whenever they were drafted up. So within the second session, they affirmed the medieval theology of the seven sacraments, that is baptism, mass, confirmation, penance, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction. And they also put forward transubstantiation. That word gives me such a hard time every time. It's not that hard of a word, Nick. Let's do this. Uh, including the sacrificial nature of the mass, while they also affirm that the laity should not have access to the cup. Uh, and they emphasize the priesthood of only the clergy, which again, Protestants were stressing the priesthood of all believers. Uh, and so all of these things essentially cut off Protestants. Um, so because of some battles that had been occurring at the time, the council dispersed and would come back about 10 years later, which is 16 or 1562, apologies, 1562 and 1563. Uh, so the session was moved forward by Pope Pius IV, but the new emperor was more moderate and friendly to the Protestants, uh, even wanting to give the communion cup to the laity. Uh, he wanted to allow priests to marry. Um, he wanted the hymns to be sung in the common tongue, uh, liturgy to be purged of different elements such as uh, uh, veneration of the saints and stripping down the papacy's power, moving back to ecumenical councils' power. Um, so that, that caused tensions, right? You had the German Roman Catholics and the French bishops who were all for the proposals of the emperor, um, but of course Pius and the Spanish delegates opposed him, and they upheld the previous councils, and they argued, hey, the previous two sessions already happened. They've already been made. Those decisions are done. They were set, and there's nothing that can be done further. And so there you go. Additionally, uh, Pius also made it to where only the papal representatives could propose resolutions, uh, which, of course, limited any views. To the contrary, uh, it was all bias in the third session. Uh, so Pius could essentially do what he wanted, and there was a passing of more anti-Protestant decrees. So the Pope said, only my representatives can make new proposals. Um, therefore, what I propose is what's going to be. Um, so invocation of the saints, veneration of relics, purgatory, uh, requiem masses, indulgences, the authority of bishops in relation to the Pope would all be established here. Uh, it was determined that the Pope was given his position directly from Christ and that bishops received their position because of the Pope. Uh, when was it though? But it was the first Vatican council in the 19th century where the Pope would be declared infallible. So that didn't happen at Trent, just so everyone knows that. Um, so in 1570, uh, the paperwork of Trent would be wrapped up, uh, including a very, uh, a textbook for the mass that would be binding, um, throughout the church until the 1960s, which would eventually abandon Latin, um, as being the only means of doing services. So they would finally say, hey, you know what? You can do this in the common tongue, right? So the choices of Trent would essentially dominate the Roman Catholic Church until the Second Vatican Council. That was in 1962 and 1965. There's a lot of changes. There are some Roman Catholics who, who say, no, no, the changes of the Vatican Council um, don't matter. Uh, we're still Trent. And so there, there's an interesting 
case study there about what changed. So we're going to talk about what didn't change and what matters the most. Justification. First off, why does it matter? Well, an evangelical scholar named Anthony Lane, who wrote a work um, called Justification by Faith in Catholic Protestant Dialogue and Evangelical Assessment, and he essentially lays out 15 key issues that are affected directly by one's view of justification, meaning that justification affects all of these things in various forms. So, one, the status of theological language. What is theological language? Well, justification, as we look at Trent, is defined differently. So justification kind of lies at the crux of that. Number two, taking charge of the biblical tension. Um, how do we understand faith and works? It has to be dealt with, and how we understand justification is how we deal with it. Uh, the interpretation of historical precedent. How do we understand history and the Council of Trent and uh, history's role? Um, it, it really does have justification sitting in it because because there was a lot of discussions, a lot of different moving parts, um, and a lot of people who who agreed with the Protestant position. And so there's a lot of questions there. Um, the rest are pretty self-explanatory, so we'll just list them off here. Um, fourth, the role of the justification in the overall theological system. Fifth, the consideration of human inability. Sixth, the definition of justification. It's kind of linked to the first one, but we'll, we'll skip it up. Seven, imputation versus infusion, right? Eight, the permanence of sin in the Christian. Uh, nine, faith alone. Ten, baptism. Uh, Eleven, law and gospel. 12, lapse and restoration. We'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, 13, merit and reward. We'll get into that a little bit. Uh, 14, assurance of salvation. Big one. Big one. Um, And 15, magisterium. So, why does it matter? It matters because it affects so much, especially practice. Especially practice. So, on the subject of justification comes a lot of myths, more than facts. So, one of them... We, we've talked about several times, but let's regurgitate it, is that when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door in Wittenberg, um, he did not have anything to do with justification at that point. In fact, Luther wouldn't discuss justification until later on in his disputation against scholastic theology. He opposed the medieval notion that one becomes righteous through the infusion of a habit of righteousness that was formulated by Aristotle. Um, and he, re- he rejected the idea that the exercise of that habit allowed for acquisition of various degrees of righteousness. In 1519, Luther would speak about the alien righteousness, that is Christ's righteousness by which he justifies us through our faith, and then the proper righteousness that comes from and works out of the alien righteousness of Christ. Um, Luther would actually articulate this as the passive and active righteousness later on, um, noting that believers receive the passive righteousness via imputation, and the active righteousness is inherent because of the passive righteousness. Um, his articulation of justification would essentially be summarized by 1535. At the same time, Ulrich Zwingli uh, had rejected scholastic understanding of justification. In 1523, he had his 67 articles. And um, Article 15, he notes that Christ is our righteousness from which we conclude that our works are good insofar that they are of Christ, insofar that they are our works, they are neither righteous or good. Uh, He essentially said the same thing as Luther, our salvation is based on faith in the gospel and our damnation is based in unbelief. So what we see is we see Zwingli coming up with the same conclusions along with others. We we talked about many other uh, ideas and even, even Catholic evangelicals earlier in this episode 
who held this notion about justification. We have to also remember we, we can't we can't you know paint this you know rainbows and unicorns image and think that it was all hunky dory. Uh, we have to remember that there has been a lot of discussion within Protestant camps on justification, and there still are today. Uh, even if you consider Jonathan Edwards to John Piper on final justification, there's many discussions happening. Um, there was discussions whenever it came to the, to Jacob Arminius and how he understood or articulated rather justification, and so we have to understand that there, there's been discussions within Protestant circles as well. Um, so instead, we're going to look more at two particular areas. We're going to look at Trent and the Joint Declaration of the Doctrine of Justification uh, that was between uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation in 1999. So we're skipping from the 16th century to 2000s. Well, 2000, I can round up. Anyway, um, so the Doctrine of Justification has been a point of contention between Rome and Protestants for a long time. Um, there's a lot of moves to being ecumenical, to being you know rejoined together. And so we, we have to discuss this to some degree. And in fact, it's, it's often asked, or I've asked myself the same question, if, if Rome was to reform itself, what would they have to do for me to accept Rome? Um, justification is seriously like the crux of the matter because of how far reaching its implications are, uh, especially whenever you consider what Rome declared about those who hold my position on justification. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um. So Trent, we summarized in the discussion of Trent, the doctrine of justification occurred within the first session, uh, and it was considered the most intense of the various topics. Trent wanted to emphasize the role of human freedom in responding to God's grace, right? And so what we see is a point of a theme of cooperating and merits. Merits and cooperation, however, were both deemed as gifts of God. So that's how they got away from semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism. Uh, and Trent had a focal point for three states of justification. State one is the initial justification of adults, where an individual receives justification for the first time. Uh, they held to the Augustinian notion, right, that all people are unrighteousness because uh, they've been born in Adam. So this change from unrighteousness can only take place with baptism or the baptism or the desire for baptism. And the desire for baptism ends up being its own thing after Vatican councils. And we're not going to go there. I don't know why I even bring, up, bring that up sometimes. It's an interesting case. That you just look it up sometime. Uh, the desire for baptism. Um, God's grace or predisposing grace initiates the move, right? And then the human will needs to accept um, the grace and cooperate it. And likewise, man can reject the grace, right? So we have synergism. We have man cooperating with God and his grace. So what we find is that the process of justification retained its scholastic influence. Um, there are called five causes for the process of justification, um, expresses the final, efficient, uh, meritorious, instrumental, and formal. The final cause of justification is for the glory of God. The e efficient cause is the merciful God himself. The meritorious cause is Jesus. The instrument is baptism, and the formal cause is the righteousness of God. So justification, as we noted prior, is defined by Trent as not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the sanctification and the renewal of the in inward being, right? So the first state. To, re to recap, is initial justification. Uh, the second stage is the progression in justification, how a person is to persevere in the received justification and make progress in it by working to maintain it to the end, right? This would be the Christian journey, and Trent notes that we are to keep commandments and pre preserve our righteousness, keeping it spotless via faith and works, and so we grow in righteousness uh, to get the reward that's anticipated. 
Justification is then faith plus works. Um, you can get into the discussion of the different categories of sins, mortal sins, venial sins, and how they affect one in terms of purgatory and all that, but we're not going there. We're, we're just sticking with the basic foundation that justification is ultimately faith plus works. So the final state of justification was the loss and recovery of justification, and this dealt with what would happen if one falls into sins and needs to recover justification, right? So for Trent, this was dealt with through the sacrament of penance. That's confession of sins, priestly um, absolution, and making satisfaction. So the contrast between Trent and Protestants, as stated previously, uh, but worth stressing once again, is that justification for Trent isn't a legal divine pronouncement, but instead a nuanced concept of various states where the human is subject to various conditions that need sacraments to uphold and work out justification to obtain the reward of justification, which is eternal life. Um, justification itself is synergistic for Trent in combining man's cooperation with God's grace rather than a declaration of man's sin forgiven definitively and permanently in terms of the man's status before God because of the work of God. So, in looking at history, there have been developments from Rome in attempts of retaining their development of justification from Trent, uh, while also trying to have compatibility with Protestants. Of course, compatibility is hardly satisfying um, when we consider the term and justification's practical implications, but I digress. So, the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification in 1999 between the Lutheran World Federation and Rome uh, came to find compatibility, as they say, and reassess the curses or anathemas of Rome at Trent. Uh, basically, uh, they were trying to say others could be Catholic, um, but there was essentially no reform for Rome. They they did not change anything. Um, the Declaration was specifically uh, desired to come to a consensus on the basic truths of justification, not in its entirety. And of course, there was other issues that occurred, and, and it's, it's a very uh, meaty document, to say the least. So Protestants basically rejected this bridge or this attempted bridge or this alleged bridge, whatever word you want to use, uh, Protestants rejected it um, because it was an attempt, um, as Protestants would say, to have Rome use biblical language and try to find a way to fit Lutheran theology into Rome's framework without changing Rome. Uh, so the Declaration still basically utilizes the understanding of justification whereby it includes the process of inner transformation and the exclusion of imputation of Christ's righteousness. So the, the, the Lutheran uh, Missouri Synod critiqued the statement as well um, in noting that while Rome has changed here and there since Vatican II, there has been no genuine resolution between Rome and Lutherans on justification. They note that it doesn't settle the major disagreement. One of the Lutheran authors of the critique actually just bluntly said, that the Declaration is a fraud put forward by um, sell-out revisionist Lutherans. Um, I just thought that was kind of funny, if I'm honest. Uh, so many have noted that Rome had changed its view on justification via this Declaration. But the reality is, it hasn't changed since Trent. And Rome stated this to be the case. Uh, the Vatican uh, felt the need to clarify almost immediately after the Declaration that the Declaration did not deny or depart from Trent, and it still remains as binding dogma on Rome. Uh, Cardinal Cassidy, 
uh, the president of the Pontifical Council of Promoting Christian Unity, who led Rome's involvement in this declaration, uh, was asked whether or not anything in the official common statement was contrary to Trent, and he said, no, absolutely not. Otherwise, how could we do it? We cannot do something contrary to an ecumenical council. There's nothing there that the Council of Trent condemns. So, this is to say that contrary to many claims I have heard, um, Trent's pronouncements haven't changed. They did not change. They are still in place. And that comes out of the horse's mouth. So, Roman Catholics need to agree on this if they're going to have discussions with us on justification. Um, According to Rome... What happened at Trent cannot be changed, and that includes the anathemas, that is the condemnations. What does Trent say? Quote, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be condemned. Or, quote, if anyone says that man is absolved from his sins and justified because he firmly believes that he is absolved and justified, and that by this faith alone, absolution and justification are affected, let him be condemned. So this really shouldn't be too surprising. It really shouldn't. It's the same message found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, formulated in 1992. So essentially, Rome didn't do anything other than use language at the Declaration to satisfy the Lutheran attendees. Um, I would say, honestly, that's just manipulation. I mean, it's very strange. Um, And if there's any doubt um, about... Um, the Council of Trent and its its binding nature today, Pope Francis in 2013 stressed the continuity between Trent and modern Rome. So I want to just state this, Protestants, according to Rome, from the 16th century to today, you are condemned, condemned for holding to the biblical view of justification. You are condemned by Rome for holding to the Pauline articulation a justification for holding to the articulation of James, a justification because they're not incompatible. Rome condemns you. So whenever we talk about, um, you know, being united again with Rome and creating one, one church again, I'm all for it, but this has to be fixed. But Rome has made it clear that what happened at Trent has to remain. Of course, it doesn't even go into how Roman Catholics have, you know, moved into inclusivism. Um, I, I don't understand what the point is of, of restressing that Trent is still binding, you know, that we're condemned because of our view on justification, but, you know, inclusivism, right? Anyone who makes the right steps, well, they're saved. Okay, so, so are, are Protestants condemned, but the atheist who baptizes his child saved? And we can talk about disagreements between Pope Francis and Vatican II and everything else, but we're not going to. The point is, at the end of the day, justification was a crux for the Reformers against Rome, and nothing has changed. So that wraps up episode 145. What we talk about next week, we'll see. And then remember, we're going to go bi-weekly again in November. Um... Hey, you know, I I try to put in work into these episodes and I try to uh, give you guys content via the various platforms. Um, if you feel so led to support me in some shape or form, you know, 
feel free to buy some tangible things like like a t-shirt or mug it, it does help i don't receive any commission or anything like that um, but it's a tangible way for you to share the podcast with your friends and family by wearing a t-shirt which by the way some of them are pretty cool um additionally sharing the podcast on your pages is also another way um if you feel led only if you feel led only if you prayed consider becoming a patron um to be upfront, you can read the patreon.com slash Christ is the cure to read how I use those funds. They, they do go for podcast stuff primarily for the year and things like that, but it does act as supplemental income uh, for me and my family as I do treat this essentially as a job and I put the hours in to say the least. Um, and I enjoy it. So there's no you know obligation or begging. It's only if you feel led to, it's only if you prayed about it, it's only if you actually considered and you want to, um, most of my patrons know this, that I'm really bad at keeping up with perks because I'm doing this and then I'm taking 12 credits in my master's program. Plus I got two kiddos and everything else, right? Um, and so those are the ways you can support me. If you're new to the show, um, it's worth noting that the first 44 episodes, first 43 episodes are not on the website simply because whenever we moved hosting platforms, we lost them. And to re-upload them all would be to throw them all out of order. And so... I've never done that, um, but yeah, that's it. So just start at 44. That's whenever the quality of the show got better anyway, because uh, really I was trying to figure out where I was going. So um, the show has slowly morphed over the years, um, and hopefully it's just gotten better. I know that many of you guys have been with us since the beginning, and I appreciate all your love and your support, and I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend, and God bless you all. And um, that's it. for me